Good morning. Man, it can't be that bad. How many of you have ever read the famous life-changing novel, The Three Little Pigs? Can I see your hands? One of my all-time favorites. I don't know if you've been reading that lately. Uh, I think that's what Josh Thomas reads quite often to his children. He's supposed to be reading that kind of thing. But, uh, you, you know, from an early age, we learn about how important decisions are. Decisions are crucial. And even as a small child, we learn very quickly that there are, well, there's consequences, there's upside, there's downside to choices that we make. I mean, a little piggy that makes his house out of hay or straw, that's a decision. Maybe not a good one, but a decision. A little piggy that makes hay out of limbs or sticks, that's a decision. A little piggy that makes its house out of brick, that's a decision. Or even the big bad wolf. I mean, anybody crazy enough to go down a brick chimney on fire into a boiling pot, well, that is a decision, isn't it? Eric Klinger, professor of sociologist at the University of Minnesota, spent nine years looking at American culture. Klinger came back and said, hey, we could not find after thousands of people that went over nine years through this sample and random sampling and talking to people and tracking people, anyone, even an individual that was homebound that had the simplest of life made a minimum of 300 decisions every day. And they said, we tracked one individual for over six years that made on the average of 17,000 decisions every day. Every single day, you and I make all kinds of decisions. And today, I want to talk to you about that, heart to heart. I'm going to encourage you, if, even if you are not a note taker, today is one of those days there's some things that I think are going to be valuable for you to jot down. Even if you are here today and you're sinless and you're perfect, and I know that's most of you, you're going to encounter a student a grandchild, a friend, a neighbor that is not in the sinless, perfect category. So let's just get this out of the way today. How many of you are here today and you would say, I've made at least one bad decision in my life? And my hope is that person sitting next to you, if you're married, that that wasn't a bad decision. You know what I'm saying? But I want you to grab your Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 9. Because in the midst of these two incredible victories at Ai and Jericho, we have one of the most unusual scenarios, uh, scenarios that, that rolls out before us. Now, once you find Joshua 9, I'm going to need you to be a little bit, what would be the word, athletic, coordination. I'm going to see if you can do some spiritual dynamics here and keep your place. Now, you that have your phone with you, I don't know what you're going to do, man. You're in a mess. You know what I'm saying? Maybe return to Pac-Man or something. But hey, uh, I, for you that have a paper Bible today, I'm going to ask you, you hold your place in Joshua chapter 9, and I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, because we really can't deal with the text today, Joshua chapter 9, which really is a, is a chapter filled with instruction about decisions. And today, as we talk about decisions, we can't get to the text without you understanding at least a semblance of, of Deuteronomy chapter 20. 
as we ended last week in Joshua 8, we didn't have time to deal with it, but the last several verses there in Joshua 8 are a great worship service on, 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 on Mount Ebal. Joshua, after these two big victories at Jericho, which was monumental, and then at Ai, has got all the people wrapped around him. And the end of Joshua 8, it says something interesting. It says, and, and Joshua read the word, the whole world word, the whole council, if you will, to God's people. Which really at that time, the whole Bible really was the book of Deuteronomy and a couple other uh, writings by Moses. But they would have gone through the whole reading of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is such a key to us understanding not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. But over in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there's two verses right here that you've got to understand before we even begin reading in Joshua 9. And here's what God's word says. In, Je in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 10, the Bible says, when you march up to attack a city, make, people, make its people an offer of peace. Look in verse 11. If they accept it, open their gates. All the people in it should be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. And then slide down finally to verse 15. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and not belong to the nations nearby. Now, I just can't tell you how important that is as we begin reading in just a moment. Why? Because God's children were commanded solely to eradicate all people in this promised land. The Canaanites get rid of them. Now, I think of some pretty simplistic ways to convey to you certain truths. Uh, somebody stopped by the office the other day, and they were a classmate of mine at Bramlett Elementary School, and that was like ancient eons years ago. And they, said, and, and they told me, they said, we remember one thing about you. You were always up sharpening your pencil. And that was one thing my teacher wrote home to my parents. They said, Mike's, you know, a pretty good student. But one thing we're having trouble with is he doesn't like to stay in his seat, you know, as a first grader. And, you know, I went through like five packs of pencils because every couple minutes I'd be up. That was the only place we could get up without punishment. Unrestricted was to go to the pencil sharpener. And man, every time I went, I loved to take that cap off, shake out the old, the old curly cues in there, and I'd grind it down a little more. In a few minutes, I'd get bored, come back. But you know, one person that is a misbehavior problem in a class of 20, 25, or 30 people begins to disrupt what? The whole picture here. And understand that God's decision was not because he was barbaric or anything else, but he knew the tendency was going to be to, 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 to do things like to intermarry. He knew that they were unequally yoked. He knew they would be a distraction. He knew that there were going to be pockets of infill of individuals that were going to cause problems for generation after generation. So God made it very clear some odd 66 times in our Old Testament prior to the children going in to the promised land by telling them, you don't leave a single living being as you take that promised land. But God did say, you can make covenant, and here's an important thing, with those of distant lands. You just read it yourself. Those individuals you can make a covenant with them. They can work for you. You can have some dialogue and some association with them, but make sure that they don't live here, but they, they are what? People from distant lands. 
And so as we come to Joshua chapter 9, I don't know how you can even look at it without that understanding. As we come to Joshua chapter 9, two things are happening. There is an alliance that is forming. Just as five significant Indian tribes pooled together resources in the late 1800s to surround a guy by the name of Custer, you've got now the word spreading. Hey, these Jesus people, these God people, these, these, these people of Yahweh and Jehovah, they don't play. They took dual walls down at Jericho and I mean, they wiped out the whole city. Hey, they didn't even take the plunder. They just left it all there. They destroyed it. And then Ai, man, they annihilated Ai. And so word is spreading. Let's read what begins to happen, the alliance that begins to be formed, that begins to form. Look in chapter 9 and verse 1. Now when all the kings went to west, west of the Jordan, heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, the western foothills, those along the Mediterranean, those all the way up to Lebanon, and he gives us a list, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. See, the first thing that happens is they say, hey, in order for us to combat several million people, we better get some numbers massed together. That, we're going to deal with that later on, that coalition, that, that whole affiliation. But there's something else going on. Look in verse number three. There's another group, another city, if you will, another small region of people called the Gibeonites. And, 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 and look at what they're going to do. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done at Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. It's interesting here, the language difference in the translations. One says, they were wily. For you that go to ETBU, that's not wily college, by the way. They were wily. They were cunning. They were deceptive. They were about to try to pull off a ruse. Keep reading. They went as a delegation. There you go, a delegation. With whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. And then they, and, 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 and they put on worn and patched sandals on their feet and they wore old clothes. All of the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, all the Israelites, we have come from a distant country. Now note that. Now do you see why Deuteronomy 20 was so, what's the East Texas word? Words, doggone important. They've come from a distant country to make a treaty with us. I want to talk to you heart to heart about something extremely important. Where you decide to go to college matters. If you don't decide to go to college, it matters. Whether you're going to save yourself or your husband or wife physically, it matters. Whether or not you're going to stay married, that decision matters. Whether you're going to be faithful or not, it matters whether you're going to take care of yourself or not, it matters. Whether you're going to be a person of integrity or not, that matters. Every single decision 
that you and I make, and we just heard the, the statistical data from the University of Minnesota, as many as what, 15, 16, 17,000 decisions a day. The average person makes between eight and 9,000 decisions every single day. And today I want you to make two lists that are gonna be very significant. The first list is gonna be how to make a bad decision. What are the characteristics of a bad, bad decision? And we'll turn that around and look at the positive side of that as well. But the second list is something that heart, you'll, you'll very rarely hear anyone from a pulpit or in a Bible setting ever talk to you about that's extremely important. And I want us to walk out with that second list as well. I wanna to talk to you at the end of our message today about how, what do you do when you do make a bad decision? Because we've all been there. No one ever helps us scripturally no one ever helped me growing up and said, hey, Michael Cook, dude, when you make some of those bonehead choices, your decisions hadn't been good, here's some things that can be done to get that thing back on path. Here, here's how to bring the best corrective measures possible. We can't do anything about the consequences, but we can do something about the decision itself. And so of all the Lord's days and all the Sundays, I'm praying that today will be a day that you will leave with some extremely important data at your disposal straight from the scripture today. Four things that we see are an error here in terms of decision-making on behalf of Joshua and the whole nation of Israel. Let's jot these down. First of all, placing too much trust in perceptions and instincts. Perceptions and instincts can get us in trouble. Now I know, I know as a parent, Becky and I did everything we could to make sure that Amber had an innate feeling of when she was in danger, certain instincts. Any of you parents here today, or you that have grandchildren, you want your children to have certain instincts. I had a little young man that was from Nacogdoches, Texas with me about a, a couple of years ago, and we went to an area grocery store to pick up some things. And when we went to that grocery store, we were shopping and he said, Uncle Mike, uh, and since I don't have any brothers or sisters, I'll let you figure that one out. But he says, Uncle Mike, hey, um, uh, I, I want you to know, man, this is a very nice store. And I said, yeah, I think it is too. We get in the car and we head over here to Skinner's. Now, I love to shop in Skinner's. I get my meat there. And I know they're going to give me good quality meat products there. But as we pulled up at the parking lot, <laughs> Charlie looked at me and he said, Uncle Mike, this place looks a little sketchy to me. And I said, Charlie, what makes you think of that? I mean, think about that. Well, just look at it. It's kind of old looking. You know, when we walked in, I said, no, man, Charlie, this is a great place, man. I want, I want to show you this meat counter back there. Now, when he left, he had a little different feeling about it. And when he ate the steak from there off the grill, he was really a fan of Skinner's. But there was something about him that made him feel like, hey, this is a safe place. This is an unsafe place. So as we look at this, I want you to understand, I'm not talking about not having any instincts. I'm talking about allowing and trusting your perception and your instincts of a situation solely. As you look at that situation, keep reading verse number six. 
The Bible says, so they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and they said to him, we've come from a distant country, we mentioned it a moment ago, to make a treaty with us. Verse seven, the Israelites said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us, and so, so how can we make a treaty with you? They're investigating. Who's doing this? Israelite hierarchy, leadership of Israel. It's kind of, you're gonna see it, it's the bad cop, good cop thing. All of a sudden, they say, hey, hey, don't, don't worry, we're who we, we are who we're saying we are. We're from a long way away. Well, really, they're from 28 miles down the road. They know as much about the covenant that had just been read in Deuteronomy to all God's people as God's people do. And I think two things are drawing these Gibeonites. Number one, fear for their lives. But I think there's some type of instinctive pull to a God that is so powerful and a God that they're so obedient to that they want to know who this God is. But they make sure they keep driving out. We are who we say we are. We're ambassadors from a faraway land, from a distant country. And now Joshua's going to get involved. Look in verse 8. And so uh, Joshua asks, now who are you? And where do you come from? And look in verse nine, and they answered, your servants have come from a very far distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that, that, that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And, and again, what are they doing here? They, they are filling themselves with all kinds of lies. Number one, we've come from a distant country. Number two, we are who we say we are. We're here as your servants. Yeah, yeah, you're really here as servants. And number three, we're here and we're invoking the name of Jehovah. We want to know about this God that you worship. And so here the people stand and they've got to make a decision. And you see, first of all, it's instinct that kicks in. It's their perceptions that kick in. Always number one, if you want to make a bad decision, just base it on that first instinct, that first glance, that first perception, and many times it won't even be 50-50. More often than not, it seems like you're going to get it wrong. Number two, the second mistake we see here is they base their decision on appearances, on what things looked like. Not so much how it felt, but now it's gonna go to their eyes. They're gonna look, and the appearance of this situation is gonna drive them to a decision. Look at what it says again in verse nine and following. Your servants have come from a distant place. The history that they recounted was 40 years ago. We heard how you got out of Egypt, that Red Sea. Hey, dude, that's ancient news. Why is that significant? Because they're saying we came from a faraway land. That's the latest we've heard. Notice they did not mention Jericho. Notice they did not mention AI. Everything they're giving us here is what? Old news. Because we came from a distant land. As you keep reading, the Bible says in verse 11, and our elders 
and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey and go and meet them and say to them, we're your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread, they said, look at this bread in verse 12. It was warm, it was fresh. Man, you could have smelled it. It smelled so good. We had to do everything we could to ration it. We had to come such a long distance. Look in verse 12. We packed it home on the day we left and came to you. And now look at how it is. It's dry, it's moldy, and, and just, just look at this. Taste it, touch it. Can you see it with your eyes? Can you see this? Can you believe in it? Hey, we've come from a far place. History, bread, but they're not done. They want to make sure that decision is sewed up as they're looking with their eyes at parents. Look at the end of verse 13 and look at our clothes. Look at these sandals that are worn out by the very long journey. And so we see all the tricks of the trade. Once you've been conned a few times in your life, you'll begin looking for the signs. Culture will try to con you because you're a Christian. Oh, you're a believer. All of a sudden, a, a, a switch will flip. Well, you know why? I'm a Christian too, really. We need to be cautious. When we only trust appearances... We're not even 50-50. Many bad things happen. Number one, when we just believe that first perception or instinct. And number two, when we make wrong calls on appearances. Number three, when we fail, take, when we fail to take time to get it right. When we're faced with a decision one of the things that we've been extremely successful for with students over the years is encouraging them in their dating life to always date in groups. When two young people get in the back of a car at midnight in the back of nowhere, good things ain't going to happen. And it's important for us to understand something. Many times we make bad choices impulsively in a short-term decision because if we would just back off and think about it, how many times in our lives are we going to have to embarrass ourselves until finally we come forward and say, you know what, just maturity and time has taught me, even though I'm impulsive and I want to fire back and I want to attack and I want to say something and I want to respond and I want to do this and I want to do it right now, I have learned not to. Because in the morning, everything will look different. If you've ever been in here and you've taken something and stolen something and you had a parent care enough the next day or when they found it to say, we're going back and you're going to take that back, big boy. The walk back up that driveway where your father's following you to say, hey, Mr. Hurd, I stole this out of your garage. I saw that skateboard. I wanted it. I took it. And now my dad's making me bring it back and I'm here to say I'm sorry. That's a walk you don't want to have to take. Taking time to get the decision right. 
you know, I just, I've, I've read this over and over. I can't figure out why, what was the big rush on making a decision. Are they ambassadors for a distant land or are they Gibeonites or some other group 20 or 30 or 40 miles away? Hey, a little bit of time would have answered that. A little reconnaissance, a little reference checking. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist even in this day and age to figure out how to, how to do something about that. Young ladies, if he really loves you, time will bear that out. What's the rush? What's the pressure? When we start feeling pressure to do something quickly, a red flag should go up every single time. Now, I'm not talking about your house is on fire and the fireman says you need to come now or you're going to burn up. <laughs> That's a little different situation. <laughs> You might want to not think about that very long. Pray about it quickly. And hopefully the heat, the Lord will speak the Holy Spirit through the heat that's coming at you and the smoke that's filling your lungs. And maybe you'll come to the right decision. I must evacuate quickly. But when we have the opportunity to process it, many times our chances go way, way up. But look in verse 14 at what happened. This is amazing. So what did the Israelites do? As soon as they said, look at this bread, man. Look at our sandals. Man, you can just see them. They're over there pulling up the robe, looking. Yeah, man, those are some old. Here, take them. Man, I don't want to eat that old moldy stuff. See if it's really mold, dude. You know, there's always one in the crowd, isn't there? Out of two million, somebody ate some moldy bread. There's always some goofball on the leadership council. There's always one goofball deacon, one goofball pastor. I hope I'm not it. But anyway, that's another story. And so here we have something that's extremely important. And can I just toss out to you, what's it, 26, 27 miles away? The truth is, not halfway around the world, right down the road, the Gibeonites have traveled about 26 or 7 miles. Two days, they could have found their homeland if they had just checked things out and waited two days. Number three, how do you make a bad decision? Just make sure you don't take time to get it right. Number four, finally, they refuse to ask, the count, ask counsel from the Lord. Man, this is huge. When we are faced with big decisions, we always need to talk to the Lord about it and be still and see what the Lord has to say about it. And the Bible tells us I mean, this is incredible. Look at it following three days after they made this treaty. Look in verse 16. They make this treaty with the Gibeonites. They said, okay, we're under the oath. In fact, back up to verse number uh, 15. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live. Joshua, just don't get in such a hurry. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it. Not only did Joshua make it, but the whole nation of Israel made an oath on God's name. We're God's people, and under his authority, we're not going to kill you. Not smart. Not wise. Look in verse 16, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were their neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out on the third day to, to the very cities. Now they're going to go to these cities uh, of, of the Gibeonites and check things out. And Is this really where they're from? I mean, incredible. 
But one of the saddest moments in all the Bible is in verse 14 and 16. When you look at that phrase at the end of verse 14, they did not inquire of the Lord. Wow. And then in verse 16, they did not inquire of the Lord and they stepped out there and they made a decision. How important are decisions? Crucial. Joshua wasn't trying to be rebellious. He just didn't pray. I mean, I, I mean, they weren't trying to be wicked. I mean, it wasn't like the sin of Achan who took that stuff, buried it in his tent. God told him not to. I mean, that was just clear, blatant rebellion before God. He knew that was rotten. He knew that was wrong, and he did it anyway. Here, it's just a prayerless group. It's a haphazard decision. It's not wise. And in doing so, we began to see a pattern forming, don't we? Remember what happened at AI? Joshua said, he didn't pray. Never asked the council, Lord. Just sent some guys down there. Check out AI. See if we can take them. They come back, oh, no problem. We don't need to take all the men down there. And we'll wipe them out. We'll just take a few thousand guys down and deal with this. No prayer, no counsel with the Lord. Not a meticulous plan like they had at Jericho. I mean, can you imagine if they'd gotten on their knees and said, hey, this thing at Jericho worked out really good for us, Lord. We think we may follow the same plan for AI. What would you have us do? But they didn't. And now a pattern's forming, and it's not good. I just want to encourage you today. It's so very important that we pray about things. That's why James 1.5 is so significant. If that's not one of your life verses, it needs to be. You remember James 1.5? If any of you lacks wisdom. You remember what it goes on to say? If you lack wisdom, you should ask God, and depending on the translation, either says he will give generously or he will give liberally. And then it has this statement. I love this statement in James 1.5. It says, and hey, hey, and without finding fault. It's as if God is inviting you to do that. He's not going, in fact, he's not going to think lowly of you. He's going to have what? He's going to be excited that you're coming to him. It's going to please the Lord when you come to him. There's going to be no fault in that. And it says, and it will be given to you. I just remind you how important prayer is. Prayerlessness cannot become a characteristic of a student ministry. It can, prayerlessness cannot creep into a young couple's life and marriage and home. Prayerlessness cannot be a part of senior adult life. We've got to be careful about that. Our Bible tells us that it's prayer that imparts wisdom, James 1.5. Our Bibles tell us that it's prayer that brings peace, Philippians 4.5. Our Bibles tell us that prayer keeps us from sin, Matthew 26.41. In fact, the Bible says prayer reveals the very will of God, Luke 11.9. If you want to know what God's will for you is, he says prayer is the way to find out. Our Bibles tell us that prayer even defeats the devil. When we read in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, 32, hey, prayer gives us the essence of the mind of our God, the heart of our God, and the very will of our God. Prayer is so very important. These pagan Gibeonites seem to be better informed than the children of Israel. We've come from a distant land, a distant land, a distant land. Remember, we're from a long way away. You can make covenant with us. Oh, they knew about God's oath and the oath to his people and the allegiance. Hey, but God's people did not make good choices. 
And you know, as we read this, we start to figure out, hey, this is not something several thousand years ago that was just written in a historical context. Hey, dude, and dudettes, this is something that's speaking to us that puts us in vulnerable places when we make decisions. Can I hear a baby amen to that? Let's review. If we're going to make decisions based on our gut feeling, our instinct, that will get us in trouble. If we're going to make it based on our eyes, appearance, that's not usually going to turn out well. If we get pressured and have to make quick decisions, not wise. And finally, if you and I get in a situation and we're not willing to spend time in prayer, big red flag. But they're pressuring us to make a decision now. We've got to accept this offer now. We've we got to do it now. He, he wants to know now. He's, he, he's going to pick somebody else if I don't tell him now. You be careful. Now, one more thing as we look at the end of this chapter. What do we do when you and I make bad decisions? And man, I've made a whole truckload full of them. Is there any hope? Is there any guidance in God's word for this? I'm just going to toss out four things to you. You know that's not a Baptist message when there's four things. Have you ever noticed that Baptists always do things in threes? Four things I want you to jot down. I just mentioned them quickly. Number one, when you make a bad decision, always own up to your role in that decision. Always, number one, own up. Here's what we do in America. We always want to blame somebody else. Now, you and I both know there was deception all over this thing. The Gibeonites, they were deceptive. We're not, that's not the question. But we just made a list of all the things that Joshua and the leadership of Israel, the, the, and we could have listed more. That was just four of the most prominent that came right out of the text. What about the role they played in the deception? Well, they didn't deceive pastor. It was the Gibeonites that came to them. They didn't, I mean, they didn't invite them to camp. These people just rode up with these old sandals and moldy bread and, 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 and said they were from a distant country. And so it really wasn't their fault. I mean, there wasn't anything they could have done, really. That's a fun thing dealing with student ministry sometimes. Parents never think their students have My students never at fault. It's the stinky youth group's fault. It's the youth pastor's fault. It's the church's fault. I mean, man, when I went to school, if I got in trouble at school, if I got a whooping at school, I got a whooping at home. It's like, Dad, I got ripped three times with a paddle at the field house by another coach. You see, I'm fixing to rip you three more for getting in that situation. But now something happens at school. What? It's the school's fault. The school board, the, man, the principal, the superintendent. Have you ever noticed? We're never at fault. I mean, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't ever have any accountability. It's always somebody else. Jim Collins is one of my favorite business authors. I don't think Jim Collins is a believer. Just want to go on record as saying that. 
I've got two of his most prominent books. One of those is called Built to Last. That's really a good book. But my favorite all-time book of him is uh, really Good to Great. But I have a third book of his that somebody gave me. I didn't even buy this one. And uh, it's a little bitty thin book. And the title of that book is How the Mighty Fall. And he chronicles some of the downfall of some of America's greatest business leaders. And Jim Collins makes this statement, and I quote him in this book, How Mighty We Fall, or How the Mighty Fall. He says, whether you prevail or fail, endure or die, depends more on what you do to yourself than what the world does to you. And I ask you, does this not kind of apply to this situation? It's not so much the Gibeonites came, but it's how Joshua handled it. If you're going to be equipped to lead a nation of two million people, you better make good decisions. What about the tribal leadership? Twelve patriarchs of each one of those tribes, they were in the leadership council. Hey, doesn't some of the responsibility rest on them? You see, the first thing, if you make a bad decision, hey, man up, woman up. Own it. It starts there. What is your role in that? Number two, even in the midst of a bad decision, you've got to still honor God. Now look down in verse 18 and 19 because we've got a royal mess on our hands. God has told the, has told the Israelites, you wipe off everybody in Cana. The Gibeonites are squarely in Cana, but now they've made this crazy oath on the Lord's name. What a mess. Do they now get out of it? And by the way, that's where we are in America as well. We always get somebody to get us out of trouble. That's our answer. We hire a lawyer to get us out of bad decision. We pay a counselor to help us get out of a bad decision. Our pastor has to help us get out of a bad decision. Our parents have to bail us out and get us out of bad situations. There's no accountability. Just get me out. Get me out of this. I, I thought I wanted to marry her, but now I don't want to be with her anymore. No, no, I want out. Just pay her off. Get her out of here. Thirty-six years ago, on that platform at Oakland Heights Baptist Church, I stood before several hundred people and made a commitment to a lady at that time by the name of Rebecca Lynn Rogers. I stood up there. I got a license before God and men, man, and said, I, I'm going to marry her and I'm going to be with her the rest of my life. Now, there have been some times in our marriage that Becky looked at me and says, I just want to kill you. I hope she didn't mean that literally. But it was a commitment. Bad or good? It was a commitment. And where we are in our world today, commitments really don't mean a whole lot, do they? So you tell me, what are the children of Israel going to do? Do they break a covenant because it was under deception? We didn't have any role. These people came to us. This was an interception, so this doesn't count. God's name doesn't count here. No, no, it's a bad deal. All of us have bought a house from time to time, or many of you have. said, so, hey, that really wasn't the, best, that wasn't the best purchase, and I'll just let it go back. Really? Just let it go back. I just won't pay for it. I just didn't make a good decision. Don't do that. 
as a believer, your name and the Lord's name mean something. Honor your commitment. When you honor your commitment, you honor the Lord. Even if you make a foolish commitment, when you make that commitment, it honors God when you keep it. So how are these individuals going to handle this? Look in verses 18 and 19. We got to hurry. You aren't listening fast enough. But the Israelites did not attack them, verse 18, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them before the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, you think? We trusted you guys to make good decisions for us. Duh, this is not a good decision. Verse 19, but the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. We will not kill them. They're 28 miles down the road. It doesn't matter. They're staying alive because we pledged it on Jehovah's name. And we're going to honor our God. Is it a good decision? No, it stinks. It disobeys God's word. He told us, I'm going to give you this land, eradicate those people. They're going to cause you problems. They're going to be issues for you. Don't leave them hanging around here. People are going to go over and intermarry with them. They're going to rise up against you. You're going to war the rest of existence in this land. Don't leave them there. Don't do it. But now you've made this oath before God with his name involved. Wow. What a challenge. Verse number 20, this is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. Two more things. Two more things that can help in a bad decision. And listen to me carefully, we close. Number three, you've got to confront the lie or the deception when it occurs. The bad choice, the bad decision, whatever's behind it, lie, deception, Rash decision, erratic decision, impulsive decision, nonsensible, what was I thinking kind of moment, uh uh-oh moment, whatever it is, you've got to confront that scenario, that situation, that lie, that deception. Look in verse 22, then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you lived near us? And look at the beginning of verse 23. He says, now, because you've lied and you've deceived, you're going to be placed under a curse. How many times do we make decisions that are poor decisions and we try to hide from them? Like a child pulling up a blanket over their head to think it may go away. We change our path at school so we don't have to see him or her. It's just going to go away. What time I won't have to think about it. I'll run from it. Always own it. Always honor God in the commitment. And always address it for what it is. Bad, bad decision. And finally, always rebuke the deceiver and protect yourself, and this is so important, protect yourself from further damage. It's one thing to make a bad decision, but here's what I see in ministry. People don't make the decision once. But we keep on making the decision. It's like we keep going back there. 
It's not like, Joshua, you made a bad decision, and Joshua's, oh my gosh, it was a bad decision. Lord, forgive me. I, 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 and and then, then he turns around and does something boneheaded again. And what's even worse is when he does the same thing again. So you and I have got to be extremely careful. In fact, let's read the end of this. Verse 23, you're now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers of the house of my God. I love that. You know what I thought about when I read that? I thought, you know, if we could take all 400, what is it, 35 members of the house, all 100 senators, lock them all up, put them in church twice a day, and preach to a bunch of those unbelievers the rest of their lives, whoa, that would do some good, amen? That would do some good right there. They're going to take these Gibeonites, they're going to make them chop wood, haul wood for the altar. They're going to make them haul water. They're going to make them clean up all the sacrificial stuff that goes on. From one generation to the next, all of the Gibeonites, that's what you're going to do the rest of your natural life. You're going to work at the temple. Every day, you you say you want to know about this Jehovah God, buddy, you're going to get a good dose of it. Twice a day, in the morning and evening, you're going to see thousands of people gathering here and make sacrifices. You're going to hear the word, reading of the word. You're going to be hauling water. You're going to be chopping wood. You're going to be serving God's kingdom the rest of your natural lives. Wow. And then the end of the chapter. And they answered to Joshua, your servants clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land to wipe out all of its inhabitants before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. That is what we did. That's, that's why we did this. We're now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems right. And so Joshua just, he just again repeats the, the decree. Here it is. The final word, Joshua saved them from the Israelites and did not kill them. That day he made the, Gide- uh, the, the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place of the Lord would, where the, the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Bad decisions so often are heartbreaking. Part of what God's called me to is I'm on cleanup duty. I, I go and try to clean up the marriages that don't, don't work out. So often when we go with Johnny Madrano and our group to jail ministry, the inmates on one side of the bars, they've made decisions. We can't change that for them. We're just there trying to help them make the most of the situation for bad choices. Are you going to own up? Are you going to honor God even in the midst of, of, of bad decisions? I mean, are you going to address the issue at hand, whatever happened, the lie, the deception, the choice? Are are you going to address that head on? And are you going to put into your life certain protocols where you won't go back there? You won't make that decision again. Four things from the text that were important. But you know what really most excites me about this? That probably very few people, if anybody in this room even knows, 
is the end of the story. You see, if we fast forward a little bit, any of you ever heard of King Saul in the Bible? King Saul began killing the Gibeonites and when he was removed from office, when he was gone, another young man came onto the scene as king. His name was David. Ever, ever heard of King David? David? The first three years of David's ministry, his reign as king, were years of famine. You want to know why there were three years of famine? Because Saul had been putting to the sword the Gibeonites. And so David and the whole nation was punished because there had been an oath made to them, we're not going to kill the Gibeonites. But I share this with you. It's a heartwarming moment in the scripture. The great days for God's children weren't always good. They're going to come on. They're going to conquer the promised land. There's going to be great days. They're going to build a, a huge edifice, a great temple in Jerusalem. There's going to be some amazing days. They're going to kind of become a powerhouse themselves in terms of national might and authority. And the name of God is going to spread. But we know there's going to be a nation that's going to come along hundreds of years after this and going to almost eradicate all of the Hebrew children. It was known as Babylonian exile. In fact, the Babylonians, they desecrated the temple. Think about the vilest thing you could do at the altar. They did it. And for 70 some odd years, God's children were the diaspora. They were dispersed all over the world, carried off into prison camps as, as servants, as slaves. And then all of a sudden, God began to bring them back. And there was a man appointed in our Bible toward the middle end of our Old Testament by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah heard the need to rebuild the temple, the walls around Jerusalem, and he went back. And here's what's so heartwarming. As all of those tribes began to gather back, you come to Nehemiah chapter 7. I love this. And it says, and the tribe of Dan began to come back. Those are the left-handed archers. And Judah began to come back. The tribe of Reuben began to come out. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in Nehemiah 7, the Bible says, and the Gibeonites started to return. The only way I can describe that to you is post-Civil War days when slaves across the United States of America said, hey, you're free. You're no longer slaves. Many of them walked off of a plantation or walked off of a farm and walked out. They jerked their hands up and said, we're free. And many of them made an about face and came back to that same plantation and that same farm. And they said, but we need a job and we're going to continue to work here. We choose to be here. And so for hundreds of years, a group that was deceptive, a bunch of liars and scammers and con artists, I believe they feared for their life and I believe they had an inquisitive desire to know this Jehovah God. Hundreds of years later, after they had worshiped and sat under the authority of the word of God, all of a sudden, they chose to come back and serve and be with God's people in the rebuilding of the temple. You know what that tells me? God can use bad decisions 
doesn't say that there's not going to be consequences and pain. But our God has hit a many a lick with crooked sticks. Aren't you thankful for our God that gives us chance after chance and that loves us enough to forgive us? The number one decision is not whether or not you build your house out of hay or straw or twigs or bricks today. The number one decision that you've got to make today is are you going to trust the Lord Jesus? Is he going to be your God? Is the Lord Jesus going to be your Savior? And that decision, my friends, will be the final decision that will impact all of your eternity. So I just ask, please choose well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these few moments that we've had in your word today. Thank you for this incredible chapter that teaches us about decisions. And Father, from a small child, we're taught from piggies and wolves and from moms and dads that decisions are important. So Father, now armed in your word with some incredible truths, I pray that we would be spirit-filled and spirit-led, that as prayerful warriors of the Lord, we would go about making wise choices and wise decisions. Father, in those moments when we falter, and we all will, we all have, Father, I pray that even in the midst of a bad decision, that we'll be mindful of how important it is that we step up and own it. Now, Father, the commitment that we made, it may not be a good commitment. It may be under a disguise of deception, or it just may be blatant, rushing, maybe some characteristic that we employed that caused us to misfire on the decision so important. But at that moment that we're committed, as a believer and follower of our Lord, we carry his name with us. Father, I pray that we would address that moment and that lie, that deception, that poor choice. And that, Father, we would address it in such a way that we would not go back there again. Father, I pray for each person that's here today, the decisions that they have to make. Maybe there's a senior couple here today praying about where their future is. Can we continue to sustain ourselves in the house that we live in? Maybe there's a young couple here today and the lack, the, the lack of true love, the luster of the marriage has worn off and now it's about washer and dryer and baby formula and bills and off to work we go because we owe. And all of a sudden we're wondering, hey, is this really worth it? Father, I pray in those moments when we make key decisions that we choose well. Father, for someone that is struggling with an addiction, struggling with a moral choice, an important life-changing decision, I pray that your spirit deep from within them will convict them and speak to them and urge them, push them to the very place, not a place of darkness, but expose them to the true light of your power and your truth. Father, we love you. 
we worship you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.